So I'm one of these people who, when driving, can sometimes be, shall we say, directionally challenged. How many of you are like that? How many of you have a spouse that's like that? Probably more willing to out your spouse than yourself on that. I get turned around easy. I get mixed up easy. Even after I've been to a certain place several times, I still may have trouble getting there. So I like to use the GPS when I'm driving. Now, an ongoing point of friendly debate between my wife and I, usually it's friendly, has been my blind trust in using the GPS when we travel. A few years ago, my wife and I were going on a trip to Savannah. We're very excited about it, very eager to go. I'd never been to Savannah before, but that's okay. I've got gyps. That's short for GPS. That's what we call her. We give her a pronoun also, her. It, it, it wasn't on the phone. I don't think at that time it was as common as now for people to have GPS on their phone uh, and where it's constantly updating and everything. This was a separate device, and you've got to pay to get those maps updated. Maybe that's where my problem began. I never paid to update any maps. Who knows what the problem was, but, but these devices are only as reliable as the information that has been fed into it. Anyway, we got the car packed. We're ready to go. We're pulling out of our neighborhood in Lawrenceville. That's where we were living at the time. Probably about 30 minutes into the trip, Dana begins to sense something is wrong. Her spidey sense is tingling. Doesn't seem like we're going the right way. But I'm not worried. I'm following gyps. We'll be fine. About 60 minutes into the trip, we're still somewhere in the Atlanta area. We're wandering around on back roads through scary places. We see no sign of a major highway. Dana's getting concerned. I'm getting a little concerned too, but I'm trying to keep a confident demeanor. Maybe this is a shortcut. Surely Gyps knows what she's doing. She's Gyps, after all. Time passes, and now even I am starting to believe that my trust in Gyps was misplaced. And I end up doing something that men only do in their most desperate moments. I stop at a gas station and ask for directions. And realize that somehow we've been turned completely around. We're going in the wrong direction. Gyps was leading us on a wild goose chase. And it was only when I got accurate directions from someone who knew the lay of the land, someone who was familiar with the landscape, that I was able to get back on track and get to my destination. In spite of all the confidence and faith I had in the GPS, I was still lost. Because my faith was in a faulty system that was unable to get me to my desired destination. I needed a more reliable direction from a more reliable source. Now, that in essence is what's going on in the churches of Galatia as Paul is writing this epistle to them. Except it's about something that is much more serious than geographical direction Instead, it's about spiritual direction. And the stakes are much higher. This isn't just about making it to the beach. It's about being made right with God. And the churches of Galatia had started out on the right track. Paul, in his missionary journey in this region, preached the gospel to them. A gospel that says that sinful man can be made right with the holy God through faith in the atoning sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Galatians had received this gospel with great gladness. But something had happened since then. And Paul now is concerned that they're on the wrong track and they are beginning to put their faith in a 
faulty system that will lead them to a dead end, indeed, off of a spiritual cliff. And the book of Galatians is Paul's course correction, not just to get Galatians, but, but wayward Christians in all times and in all places to get them back on track so they can reach their destination safely. So, with that said, why don't you stand with me now in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Yes, Paul wrote this, but his message is directly from God himself. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is trying to drive home in this little section starting in verse 11, and we'll read on down through the end of the chapter. God's Word says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help me this morning? I come into this pulpit physically weak. I come into this pulpit spiritually weak, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, Father, would you help a weak and wayward preacher, and would you help any this morning who are struggling with weakness, open our eyes and open our ears to to see and to hear your word. Father, you have a word this morning for believers. You have a word this morning for for unbelievers. And so, God, I ask you, even though we're not worthy to hear from you, I pray that you would speak now to us through your holy and inspired word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The churches of Galatia began to go uh, off track thanks to a new group of teachers that come into the region known as the Judaizers or the circumcision party. And they began teaching that in addition to faith in Jesus Christ, they also needed to become Jews. They needed to obey the Jewish Old Testament laws. And if they were really going to become Jews, if they're really going to be sons of Abraham, they need to receive the sign of circumcision. So no doubt, they, in their Bible studies, they probably went back to Genesis 17, 
Use it as one of their proof texts where in that chapter God gives the sign of circumcision to Abraham. And God says to Abraham that all the males in his family from generation to generation who would be a part of God's people must receive this mark. And the Judaizers are saying, guess what? That's still the case. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. You've got to be circumcised to be a part of God's people. Now, that's a radically different message from what Paul was preaching to them. If you look back in verse 7, Paul calls their message a distortion of the gospel. And in verse 6, we learn that the Galatians are actually beginning to take this message the message of the, of the Judaizers, very seriously. He says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And so Paul now is writing this letter as a course correction to get these Galatian believers back on track. Now, in addition to the false teaching that the Judaizers were spreading, the circumcision party was also spreading false accusations about Paul. They were accusing him that the gospel that he preached was a gospel that was made by men, a man-made gospel, that maybe he heard this from somebody else, or you know, perhaps he heard something from the original apostles, but then he took that message and he adapted it and he twisted it for his own purposes, and now he's preaching a, a man-pleasing message that's designed to make Paul popular to give him favor with men. Now, if any of those accusations leveled against Paul are true, then that completely invalidates Paul's gospel and completely vindicates the Judaizers. So a lot's at stake. But at the heart of this issue in this this little section here in the second half of Galatians 1, the heart of the issue is the question, why should the Galatians be confident in Paul's message? Why should we listen to Paul's gospel over the Judaizers? How do we know that his gospel is the right gospel? How do we know that it is the authentic gospel? And so Paul now begins a defense of the gospel. The first emphasis of Paul in his defense is that his gospel is authentic because it's divine in origin. And, and the, the other thing that he wants to say is that he's not preaching a man-made gospel. He says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul says that his gospel wasn't invented by human imagination, by a clever mind. Paul wasn't sitting around dreaming this up. Indeed, nobody could have dreamed up the kind of gospel that Paul preached. If someone was going to dream up a gospel, if someone was going to come up uh, with a religion, they're going to invent some sort of message here, what would they come up with? You don't have to guess. Just look around at the religions of the world. Everywhere you will see religions that exalt man, that make man feel important, that affirm man as he is, that teach you that, that sure, you need a little help from God, but in the end, it's up to you. In the end, the final determinative factor is your choice, your efforts, your strength, your moral purity, your ability to be righteous, your striving to be a good person. From the Muslims to the Mormons, from the Jews 
to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Everywhere you turn, you will find a religion that flatters man and makes man out to seem better than he really is. If Paul wanted to invent a religion where he would be popular and well-liked and inoffensive, then Paul was the biggest idiot on the planet. Because the gospel that he preached and the gospel that you and I are to preach today is the single most offensive, most repugnant message that man could ever hear. It's a message that says that even if you admit that you are a sinner, you are worse than you think you are. And even if you admit that God is holy, He is more holy than you think He is. And you are so depraved and warped in your sinfulness that you don't even want to follow God. That you are so sinful that you never do anything good. And that the least of your sins is worthy of you being in eternal torment in hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. Man on his own is completely and utterly spiritually helpless. And in the very next chapter, in Galatians 2.16, Paul makes this powerful, forceful declaration without any ambiguity and without any apology. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Salvation is not faith in your own works. It's not faith in your own goodness. It's not faith in religious deeds. It's not faith in circumcision. It's not faith in church attendance. The only hope we have to be made right with God is by faith in Jesus Christ. Through God's amazing grace. And that offends people. And it it pricks our pride. That's why Paul writes elsewhere that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In, In contrast to being one who seeks to please men, Paul actually preaches a message that offends the sensibilities of men. And later on in Galatians, Paul's going to turn the table on the Judaizers. He says in Galatians 5.11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, Paul is saying that if he wanted to be popular and avoid persecution, he would do exactly what the Judaizers are doing. And he would preach circumcision. Because circumcision, or any works-based religion, removes the offense of the cross because it takes the spotlight off of the cross, which is a sign of how bad you are, and puts the spotlight on your works, which is supposed to be a sign of how good you are. And in essence, Paul's going to say later on in Galatians, guys, it's the Judaizers who are the real man-pleasers. It's the circumcision party who has a man-made message creating a false gospel that suits their own ends and glorifies themselves. False gospels that are man-made in origin, they're always designed in the end to make man look good through our efforts and pious deeds. But the true, authentic gospel makes God look good. The great reformer Martin Luther, who spent his life fighting the faulty, works-based religious system of Roman Catholicism, said this. 
He said, the gospel is true because it deprives men of all glory, wisdom, and righteousness and turns over all honor to the Creator alone. That's one of the most significant differences between the divine, authentic gospel and a false, man-made gospel. So, not only is the gospel not man-made, but also... The next thing is that Paul did not get his gospel from any man. He says in verse 12, For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. So Paul wasn't sitting under Christian teachers memorizing gospel truths and learning things from other people. That's not how he got his information. So how did he learn this? Second half of verse 12. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, those ten little words at the end of verse 12 have earth-shattering implications, not just for the churches in Galatia, but for us today. If those ten words are true, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, if those words are true, that automatically destroys any competing religious claim. Those ten words are absolutely devastating in a 21st century pluralistic American society where the cultural air we breathe consists of a relativistic religious equivalence, where we are taught that every religious belief and truth claim is equally valid, should be equally affirmed, should be equally accepted. Someone's belief might not be true for you, but it can be true for them, and vice versa. We aren't supposed to criticize or evaluate or scrutinize any religious worldview. And yet, Here comes Paul, and he's saying, guess what? I got my revelation directly from a man who used to be dead and now is alive and who is seated at the right hand of God himself. If that's true, that automatically disqualifies any and every competing religious claim, including the claims of the Judaizers who are sowing confusion in the Galatian churches. Paul's gospel is not just Paul's gospel. It is none other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul doesn't stop here. He can't stop here. He knows that anybody can make a claim like that. Sure, Paul, you got your message directly from Jesus Christ. How how do we know your message is divine and not from men? And so Paul needs to continue. And that moves us into his second point of emphasis in this section. After talking about the divine origin of the gospel, he gives an incredible, amazing proof that his gospel is divine and not human in origin. A proof that he received it directly from Jesus Christ. And that proof is that his gospel is authentic because it brings supernatural transformation. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, writes that this passage does not contain doctrine. Paul adduces his own case for an example. Does that surprise you? It surprises me. We have Paul here, the great thinker, the great theologian, the master teacher. He does not dive into doctrine, at least not directly. He does not provide some great intellectual apologetical defense. Instead, he simply says, look what happened to me, and you explain it outside of an encounter with Jesus Christ. And now Paul unfolds this portion of his argument in three sections. And the first one is Paul's pre-conversion hatred of Christ. Paul's pre-conversion hatred of Christ. Paul wants us to see a dramatic juxtaposition 
between his current life as a gospel preacher and his former life as a gospel persecutor. Paul is saying, consider what I was before all of this. There was absolutely nothing in my former life that would have prepared my heart to receive a message of gospel grace. Look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul had nothing but absolute hatred for Christianity. He utterly despised it. He he made it his life's mission to extinguish Christianity because he was convinced that it was a blasphemous lie. He says, you heard about this, Galatians. You heard how I persecuted the church violently. If you read Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8, you'll see Paul, who was formerly called Saul, Saul of Tarsus, he was one of the men behind the execution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Acts 22 4, Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death. We often regard Paul as a kind and loving man, a tender-hearted pastor and missionary who cared about people. But Paul says in Galatians 1.13 that in his former life he tried to destroy the church. He uses a Greek word that was used of the sacking of cities. He was a violent, murderous man. If Saul of Tarsus were alive today, he would be regarded as a terrorist, a dangerous religious fanatic. When you think of Paul before his conversion, think ISIS. If old Paul were here, he would burst into the doors of Harbin's church, and he would would come in here and he would mercilessly tear loving parents away from their children and drag those parents away to their execution. He would do that to you, each and every one of you who affirmed Jesus Christ. He was totally out of control. He hated Jesus and he hated his followers to the core of his heart. Now, what was it that fueled Paul's hatred for Jesus? Well, we find it in Paul's next point, which is Paul's pre conversion commitment to Judaism. Paul's pre conversion commitment to Judaism. Don't think that, that we can just dismiss all of this and say, oh, well, Paul was raised as a Christian. Paul had Christian friends. He had Christian influences in his life. Don't think that Paul, before his conversion, that he was just some sort of aimless guy who had no direction and who would be the perfect prospect for the Christian gospel. Again, Paul is showing us that there was nothing, there's nothing that anyone could detect in his former life that would predispose him to love and serve Jesus Christ. He says in verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a religious teacher. The Pharisees were utterly devoted to their religion. And no one was more religious than the Pharisees. They were committed not only to the Old Testament religious laws, but also to the traditions of the fathers, uh, the religious rules and regulations and ethical laws that weren't even in the Old Testament. 
Uh, they were, the, those laws were supposed to help people keep the Old Testament, but in truth, they became an overwhelming burden for the people. But Paul, he was in all of that. That was his thing. He, he did his best to keep hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws and teach other people to do the same, and boy, was he good at it. Paul was the very best at being religious. He says in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Paul was the, the young rising star in Judaism. He was growing in fame and popularity and admiration. He was on the fast track to great success, being well esteemed by the people. Now this is very important to remember. Let's not forget who Paul's opponents are in this letter. His opponents are not the Galatians. They're the Judaizers. Judaizers who were saying that becoming a law-keeping Jew is the way to salvation. But Paul here is saying, guess what? I've been there. I've done that. Nobody was more committed to Judaism than me. Nobody was more religious than me. Nobody did more God talk than me. I got the bumper stickers. I've got the t-shirts. I know all of this stuff. I've got the Old Testament memorized. If anyone could have confidence in his own ability to be religious to the point of saving himself, it's me. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives a little bit of his Jewish credentials before his salvation. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In fact, Paul was so committed to Judaism that the old Paul would not be writing a letter attacking the Judaizers, he would be attacking them physically because the Judaizers acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah and Paul hated Jesus. Better for these Judaizers to deal with the new Paul than the old Paul. And that's the point here in Galatians. In describing his former way of life, Paul is reminding us that he was a man who was absolutely committed 100% to being an antichrist, an anti Christian. Someone who is radically opposed to the gospel because he saw it as a threat to his own beliefs and the things that he held so dear. The late John Stott wrote that a man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind or even to have it changed for him by men. No conditioned reflex or other psychological device could convert a man in that state only God could reach him, and God did. And that is precisely Paul's point, which moves on to Paul's next phase in his argument, which is Paul's transformation through God's amazing grace. Paul had been like a runaway freight train, barreling down the tracks, totally out of control, running over everything and everybody that got in his way. There was no way he was changing direction. There was no way he was changing his mind. No one could pull him aside and say, well, Paul, let's think about this for a second. Maybe your way is not the right way. Are you kidding me? That would have been impossible for, for anybody to do. 
But something did happen because Paul is a totally different man now. So what happened? Verse 15 happened. But. Oh, how I love that word, but. There it is again. We read it earlier in Ephesians 2. Here it is in Galatians 1. But when he, when God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. You see, what is impossible with man is possible with Almighty God. Paul didn't give himself credit for his conversion. Paul didn't pat himself on the back for his change. Paul gives all the credit and all the glory to God who, even before Paul was born, had his eye fixed on Paul, had a plan for Paul, had a purpose for Paul, had chosen Paul. We need to feel the weight of this. The only reason why Paul is a Christian and a gospel preacher is due to God's amazing sovereign grace. Paul did not decide to change his life. Paul was quite content barreling down his hell-bound path. But God, even before Paul existed, said, that one is mine. One day, God stopped Paul in his tracks and said, enough. Friends, that's grace. That's what he did for Paul, and that's what he has done for every single one in this room who is in Jesus Christ. That one is mine. God did not have to do that for Paul. Paul doesn't deserve this. But he says that God called me by his grace, and and watch this, and was pleased to reveal his son to me. It was God's good pleasure that brought this into Paul's life. And earlier in the service, Todd read that amazing account from Acts chapter 9 where Paul, en route to persecuting more Christians, is confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he struck blind. And that physical blindness surely was an illustration of his spiritual blindness. Paul was the great Pharisee, the great theologian, the hyper-religious zealot who thought he knew the truth, thought he could see the truth, but he was only a blind man in the end. Indeed, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Regarding unbelievers, their spiritual sight is blinded and they cannot see the glory and the beauty of Christ. Instead, Christ is repulsive or boring or offensive or mundane or less glorious than he really is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes of his Jewish brethren as having minds that are hardened It's like they have a veil over their eyes. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3.14 that to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. And in writing of his Jewish brethren, Paul is also writing of himself. He once had that veil. When he read the Old Covenant, when he read the Old Testament, he could not see the glory of Christ in it. And how is that veil removed? Paul goes on to write, only through Christ is it taken away. And that's exactly what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. He is struck physically blind by Christ. 
But a few verses later, he receives the Holy Spirit, and we are told that immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. That veil was removed. It's interesting if you go back up to uh, verse uh, 12 in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says he received his gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Interesting word there, revelation. Apocalypsis is the word in the Greek, and that word means an unveiling. A a removal of something that once had been concealed. Paul knew something of Christ before the Damascus Road, but now with the veil lifted, he really knows him. Now he looked at the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and now without the veil, he sees Christ all over it. All of it makes sense to him now. He finally understands Paul once was blind, but now he sees. And it's all the result of God's amazing grace. Indeed, that is how every one of us in this room were converted. We have not encountered the risen Christ like Paul has, but we've all experienced a healing of spiritual blindness where Christ is now beautiful and glorious, where he was once plain and mundane. Ephesians chapter 2, which Jeff read earlier, says that we were all like Paul, But instead of using the metaphor of blindness in Ephesians 2, we're given an even stronger word. We are told in Ephesians 2 that we are dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, by the way. All who are outside of Christ are not only dead, but they're devil followers. That's Paul, not me. Take it up with him if you don't like it. That's what you were before you were saved, before you were converted. He says, says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And to have that blindness healed, to have that veil removed, to receive spiritual resurrection from the dead means more than just a change of mind about Jesus, but also an ongoing transformation that continues for the rest of your life. You just don't discover the glory of Jesus and then go on for the rest of your life as if nothing ever happened. That's why I get so concerned about people like who say, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian. And their life has never changed, not one iota. You mean to tell me that you have have come to an understanding of the glory of Jesus Christ and you just keep on going your own way and not after him? Not at all. Not at all. Encountering Christ changes you forever and it keeps on changing you. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16, He says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and he goes on to say, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That as we see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ more and more, we become more and more transformed. We become more and more like him. And so now Paul moves on to his post-conversion change of life. His post-conversion change of life. Paul says in verse 16 that when God was pleased to reveal his son to me 
in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. A few things of note here. First of all, Paul tells us why God revealed his son to me. Verse 16, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God gives Paul a mission. He gives him a work to do. He gives him a purpose. God just just doesn't save you and take you to heaven. And God just doesn't just save you and then just leave you to wander aimlessly through, through life with no purpose. God saves us, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And Paul is now to be a preacher of the gospel, specifically to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, to people like the Galatians. This is remarkable. Being a strict Pharisee, Paul would have in all likelihood looked down upon the Gentiles. Indeed, many Jews thought that the only purpose a Gentile had was to be fuel for the fires of hell. And now here's Paul, commissioned by God to snatch Gentiles from the fires of hell through the preaching of the gospel. How beautiful is that? And Paul's telling us this to reinforce his earlier point that his gospel was not taught to him by mere men, but by Jesus Christ directly. Paul, he says that he didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't sit at the apostles' feet for study. He didn't go to seminary where he could be instructed by others. Where did he go? Verse 17. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, it can be inferred from Acts chapter 9 that he spent his time in this area preaching and ministering. But the point is that he is doing it apart from the apostles, the other apostles. In fact, in verse 18, we learn that he's doing this on his own for three years. Verses 18 and 19 mentions a brief visit with Cephas, that's Peter. A brief visit with Peter and James at the Jerusalem church. He he emphasizes the brevity of this visit. He's like, it was only for 15 days. He emphasizes the brevity of the visit to drive home the point that he's not hanging around a bunch of Christians, getting a lot of gospel instruction from them. Paul just visited Peter briefly to get to know him, not to receive instruction from him, and then immediately, after a couple of weeks, he heads off on his own again to preach. That's verse 21. And then he says in verse 22, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Again, this just continues to make Paul's case that he had no close ties with other Christians. Uh, people whom he could have gotten his message from. He's just continuing on his own, preaching the gospel that he received directly from Jesus Christ. Now, we'll see next week when we we get into chapter 2 that remarkably he gets this this revelation. He's preaching the gospel. And later on he has another another meeting with uh, with the Jerusalem church. And he's, he's talking with Peter and with James. And they endorse his message. And it turns out that the message that he's been preaching on his own is the exact same message that Peter and James have been preaching. Which is further evidence of the validity of Paul's gospel. But at this time, in the beginning, he's relatively unknown to the Christian community in Judea. But one thing was known. Look at verse 23. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. What was known about Paul was his changed life. Which brings us back to the question, how? Why? What accounts for this dramatic 
180 in Paul's life. Paul had everything going for him in his former life, did he not? And yet, suddenly, he drops it all. He leaves it all behind. He gives it all up. For what? To go to Arabia and preach in obscurity for three years, which in the end leads to persecution in Damascus, Acts chapter 9, which is just the beginning of a life full of hardship and persecution. Indeed, at the end of the book of Galatians, in chapter 6, verse 17, he takes a parting shot at the Judaizers. And he says this, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In other words, these Judaizers can go take a hike. They haven't a clue what they're talking about. They're the man-pleasers. I'm not, and I've got the scars on my back to prove it. And again, that begs the question, why? Why do this? Why put up with all of this? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists just a snapshot of his, post -life, his, his, his life post-conversion. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city. You getting the point here? There's a lot of danger associated with this Christian life. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And again, the question is, why? You had a great life before all of this, and you can go back to an easier life. You don't even have to be a Pharisee again, Paul. Just be a Judaizer at least. Just compromise a little bit. What's the point? And the point Paul is making is that I'm putting up with all of this because the gospel is true. The gospel is real. The gospel is worth living for. The gospel is worth dying for. And this gospel is the only means by which one may enter into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, there is nothing else that can adequately explain what in the world happened to the Apostle Paul other than that he has received the authentic gospel directly through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The veil from his eyes was lifted. He saw the glory of Jesus. And now that he could clearly see, he recognized that the value of Jesus was infinitely superior to the value of everything else he was chasing in his old life. Indeed, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul calls all of that old stuff garbage compared to Jesus Christ. He says in Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He considered everything in his old life as garbage compared to Jesus. Is that how you feel about Jesus? 
What do you find that you're tempted to find more attractive than Jesus Christ? Is it popularity? Is it likes on Facebook? Is it your gadgets? Is it your money? Is it your houses? None of those things in and of themselves are necessarily wrong, but it is wrong to count them as more important than Jesus Christ. Lord, may we count the treasures of the world as rubbish compared to the treasure of Christ. I'm fearful that some of you don't really believe it. But I will be glad to be wrong. Paul's life was forever changed by the grace that God gave him. And that grace is still changing people today. There may be someone in this room who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. You need to know that there is no difference between Saul the Pharisee and you. You may say, well, I'm not a terrorist. I'm not going around persecuting people like Saul was. I I can't relate to that. But the Scriptures say that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. Scriptures say that you are hostile to Jesus Christ just like Saul was. And if you're not following the Lord Jesus Christ, I promise you, you are following a faulty spiritual system that will lead to your destruction. But the Scriptures also say that the same gospel that saved and transformed Saul can save and transform you. The gospel says that while you are not so good that you can save yourself, the gospel also says that you are not so bad that God can't save you. You might say, well, you don't know the bad things that I've done. Can this gospel really save somebody like me? I'm haunted by the past. I wake up in the night thinking about the things that I've done, and I just don't know if God can save somebody like me. And if you ask that question, you've totally missed the point of what Paul is writing here in Galatians chapter 1. This gospel we are talking about is a real, transforming, authentic gospel. And the story of Paul's conversion just doesn't give credence to the fact that the gospel can save a wretch like him, but also that if it can save a wretch like him, it can save a wretch like you. And so if God is stirring your heart and awakening faith in you right now, don't ignore that. Don't put off believing and and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to talk more about what that means, let me tell you something. Nothing would thrill me more than to spend some time with you today sharing more about the authentic gospel which can save and change you. Let me leave you with a final word of encouragement from Paul himself. He wrote this near the end of his life. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 and following. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Let's pray. Father, whatever I have said that is useless, let it be forgotten. Only that which is useful and glorifies Jesus Christ 
and puts the gospel on display. Only those things, Father, let those things be remembered. Father, for those of us who are believers, I pray that you would help us to grow in living the kind of life that demonstrates the reality of the gospel. It was evident in Paul's life, and people were glorifying God because of it. Father, for those who have come this morning as unbelievers, lift the veil, heal the blindness, raise the spiritually dead, so that new life may happen right now. In Jesus' name, amen.